With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Dr. Sewalt Menzel. Dr. Menzel is a university professor whose latest book, The Pearl Harbor Secret, Why Roosevelt Undermined the U.S. Navy, relies on recently declassified documents to reshape our thinking as to what Pearl Harbor was really about. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Dr. Menzel. Thank you very much. Where does your personal story begin? The uh, personal story actually begins uh, when I was born. Uh, the only son of my parents, uh, my mother, English and Scotch, my father, German, uh, in Chicago. Both were artists by profession. Uh, I moved, they moved out of Chicago a year later, and I grew up in Winnetka, Illinois, a North Chicago suburb village on Lake Michigan. I always wanted to have a life of adventure, and the military offered this to me. While my neutral high school classmates went on off to Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, and the like, I opted to go to the Citadel, a Charleston, South Carolina military college. It enabled me to obtain a full regular commission in the U.S. Army in 1964. I then became an Army Ranger. Rangers are indoctrinated and trained to solve problems on the battlefield, no matter where they may take place or how dire the situation is. And that's what I did, indeed. I had married adventure in space. Uh, in Vietnam, I served with the 101st Airborne Division during the infamous uh, Viet Cong Tet Surprise Offensive of 1968, covering the length and width of Vietnam. As such, I saved a 35-man infantry platoon from being wiped out by a Viet Cong ambush. I came back to Vietnam in 1970 to command an armored cavalry reconnaissance troop of some 35 tanks and armored assault vehicles. My ambush tactics north of Saigon along the Cambodian border enabled my men to interdict a major network 
of enemy trails coming into Vietnam, and they killed over 400 enemy soldiers without losing a single man. I then spearheaded the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment's attack into Cambodia. Eventually, I ended up on General Creighton Abrams' Joint General Staff in Saigon in early 1971, where I saw him bungle the strategically vital attack on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Whoever dominated the trail would dominate the Vietnam battlefield. And whoever dominated that battlefield would win the war. And that is exactly what happened. I was then focused for the rest of my career on Latin America. Uh, my book, Dictators, Drugs, and Revolution, tells that story. I left the Army in 1991 and became a Ph.D. university professor teaching U.S. foreign policy, Latin American politics, and a course called War, Strategy, and Politics at Florida Atlantic University. I noted around the beginning of this century that the U.S. National Archives had begun to dribble out or release formerly top-secret documents relating to the U.S. naval intelligence and America's entry into World War II. I had always been interested in why it was that President Franklin D. Roosevelt had made Nazi Germany the number one priority for defeat in World War II. Why not Japan? Didn't they attack us first at Pearl Harbor? This now began a six years research uh, process investigating the five principal U.S. national archives, two on the East Coast, three on the West Coast. It took me five long years to finally figure out why Pearl Harbor took place as it did. And it was earth-shaking in every sense of the word. Declassified top-secret documents, as well as the written daily diaries and memoirs of key players in the Roosevelt administration, would clearly spell out what actually happened and why. So I, I want to pause here for a moment because, you know, I, I want to just reflect on the fact that you're not just looking at this from an academic's perspective. You know, you had a very long career in the U.S. Army, uh, seen a lot of battle, and it's, it's probably more than fair to say um, you, know your, uh, you know the ins and outs of military planning and strategy. Yes, indeed. All right. So talk to me about how that came, um, how you were able to rely on that as you were doing the research and putting together the narrative for the Pearl Harbor secret? Well, I realized uh, from my own studies of military history, uh, World War II in particular, the Korean War, that uh, the early histories of those wars were quite often uh, very inaccurate, muzzled, uh, portrayed a unreal uh, situation, uh, glamorized a number of generals who were actually extremely incompetent. And so it was, in my opinion, needed to take a critical analytical perspective in terms of my research. Don't accept anything at face value. Uh, compare, contrast. And, and it wasn't until the very end of those five years that I came up with a document that provided me with the why of Pearl Harbor. And I, I will get to that as I, I, I continue on. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it certainly, you know, history is written by, um, you know, the winners, uh, per se. Right. So, um, and, and every history book is, is biased in some regard based on what the authors and what the editors want. And it sounds like there was, you know, what was commonly known or believed about Pearl Harbor, that it was, you know, a big sneak attack, uh, on the U S um, that that's a narrative that, that you challenge in your book. Yes, indeed. I challenge that, uh, 100 percent and uh let me uh get a little bit ahead of myself uh i'm the only author apparently who's used the declassified top secret documents to analyze pearl harbor if you haven't done that your analysis will be incomplete or inaccurate now a hundred books have been written about pearl harbor prior to the year 2000 and i had people for example i'm going to get a little ahead of myself uh uh, one respected uh, author was saying, well, the U.S. Navy didn't have an intelligence program uh, that could possibly determine when and where the Japanese were going to make an attack. And I would uh, challenge that, and I would say, yes, the U.S. Navy did have a program, and I will go into that in, in some detail. And they knew right up until the last second when the attack was going to take and, that, and that's because of uh, certain situations uh, in the Office of Naval Intelligence and the Naval uh, Commanding Admiral uh, in his office during those two hours leading up to the actual uh, outbreak of the attack. Keep in mind, there's a, a uh, when it's uh, five thirty, when it's seven thirty in the morning at Pearl Harbor, it's two o'clock in the afternoon in Washington D.C. So these guys were wide awake at the time the Japanese were going in to the attack. And then they had a meeting thereafter where they discussed the attack. And I will talk about that. And that is a very illuminating meeting. And uh, it sort of sums up in a couple of sentences the pages and pages of details uh, that I will uh, uh, go into, which are very interesting. It's all in chronological order. So you're not going to get... I, I don't think confused or mixed up as they go along. Yeah. But it, uh, it took infinite patience to do all this. And it was a puzzle right up until the end. I had no idea what the why was W H Y. And, uh, and I'll tell the story when I, when I get to it. But if you, if you would allow me, I'd like to go into the actual, uh, story of, uh, Pearl Harbor and how it happened to come out. Uh, leading off with the Japanese out in the uh, Pacific. Yes, well, please tell us what we do not know. Okay. First and foremost, I would say up front, Pearl Harbor was the stellar political event of the last century, propelling the United States into becoming the greatest industrial and military power in history, a position that still holds even today. In 1853, Commodore Matthew Perry's battle squadron, belching smoke and fire, sailed into Tokyo Bay. His big guns shook up the Japanese shogunate, which realized that it, too, would have to have a navy. Using Dutch navigational training and purchased British warships, Japan forged ahead. In 1898, 
U.S. Navy Admiral Dewey seized the Philippines. Notably, his big guns had annihilated Spain's little guns. It was also a wake-up call to Japan that now saw its own budding manifest destiny in the Western Pacific on a collision course with that of the United States. By 1905, Japan's Navy supported six battleships and 52 cruisers, which went on to annihilate the Russian Baltic fleet of 27 ships off the southern coast of Japan. Again, big guns had defeated little guns. And I might add, this is the first time in history that an Asian country had defeated in naval battle a Western country. So it was a a big deal. This was indeed a wake-up call to the world. Japan had arrived and was now on deck in every sense of the word. The U.S. Navy also took notice, serious note, and developed its own war plan orange to defeat the apparent potential threat of a rising sun in the North Pacific. I might add, the U.S. Navy has always been spot on in seeking out what could be the potential naval threats to the United States and, and always coming up with some sort of a uh, plan, uh, contingency plan, if you will, to deal with whatever situation might arise. As luck would have it, after World War I, Japan was awarded for its transport services to the British in the Mediterranean, uh, receiving all of the former German-controlled islands and territories, the Carolines, Marshalls, and a portion of New Guinea in the South Pacific. Tokyo now found itself as an imperial nation. Its navy now became known as the Imperial Japanese Navy, or what the U.S. Navy would call the IJN. At this time, the U.S. Navy got very serious about what the IJN was all about. Intelligence was now the name of the game, and helping matters were two revolutionary technologies that had come into play at the turn of the century. First was the ability to transmit messages by radio over long distances for thousands of miles to ships at sea, which greatly facilitated the command and control and maneuver of battlefields. Second was the ability to pinpoint the location at sea of a ship's radio transmitter through its own signals. This is called radio direction finding, or RDF. By the mid-1920s, under the tutelage of one brilliant U.S. Navy lieutenant, Lawrence Stafford, the Navy organized its intelligence operations to focus on Japan. Growing from its inception of only seven personnel to 730 by 1941. So naval intelligence came out of the 1920s and evolved into an incredible organization. He became known as the father of naval intelligence. Stafford was assisted dramatically in his efforts by one Agnes Driscoll, a civilian woman who led the way in breaking down and solving every one of the complicated IJN codes, most importantly, its operational codes. In turn, she trained over 30 U.S. Navy intelligence officers to also be able to decode the Japanese naval operations code. This was absolutely critical. 
And ironically, I'm going to get way ahead of myself. When the war was over, the Navy put up a plaque with the names of all the guys in naval intelligence who had been uh, uh, doing uh, such a fantastic job. Her name was not included. Well, I, th- I, think, I think we need to pause there for a second because wh- why, why is that? Um, she, she played such a critical role. Um, she was a woman. She was a woman. So we, we need Hollywood to make that movie. Uh, well, I, I think uh, we wouldn't put that in the, into the movie in Hollywood. I would say uh, she would be something that you would focus on uh, as part of that early part of the movie, uh, training these guys uh, to break down the uh, Japanese code. Now, because the Japanese ideographic language was too complicated, complicated for signaling, it had to use the universal Morse code single signal transmission system modified to duplicate the sounds of the Japanese language, and it was called Hana Hana. The language could now be fully encoded and sent by Morse code signal systems to any point in the world. Stafford trained hundreds of sailors and Marines in the 1920s and 30s on how to intercept, copy down, and even decode the intercepted signal. Critically useful in this work were a number of unique technologies of the day. The Underwood typewriter, modified for rapidly copying down the IGN's Canacana code signal, came into play. IBM punch card tabulating machine for breaking down and correlating the IGN's codes came into play. Radio fingerprinting, as they called it, whereby a Navy radio intercept man could take each IJN radio transmitter's unique sound and thereby identify the ship actually doing the signal. The use of oscilloscopes, which depicted radio signal patterns on a screen to determine which IJN ship or signal station was making the transmission. Importantly, these, in conjunction with two or more radio direction finders, RDF, azimuths, or plots, but not only pinpoint, but also identify the principal IGN aircraft carriers as well as battleships. And these became the primary focus of all naval intelligence operations. Aircraft carriers and battleships. Aircraft carriers being top priority. Paying huge dividends in all this was the 22-station network of intercept stations and radio direction finders arrayed along the length and the width of the Pacific Ocean. They were known as a splendid arrangement. You've got a map I sent you on that. Yeah. Note that only... uh, Yeah, I just want to interrupt. Do do the Japanese know about about this? Do do they know that we have this technology to track them or no? No, they did not. They didn't have one iota of a clue as to what U.S. naval intelligence is capable of doing. Thank God, uh, because that, uh, and and we're going to see this where we actually get to the Pearl Harbor attack. It's very very interesting, but uh, no, they did not, and uh, they were fully confident that their codes could never be broken. Uh, they modified them from time to time. The U.S. Navy intelligence was spot on. They also made the modified catch up and continued to break the code. So it was really a brilliant organization. Uh, not only were American intercept stations in this network, but also the British and the Dutch 
note that the symbol for Station X at San Francisco is highlighted. This is because it represented the 13th Naval District's Globe and Press Wireless, RCA, AT&T, and McKay Radio and Telegraph Company. Having RDF capability of these companies would make these stations critical to the Office of Naval Intelligence in the days leading up to the attack on Pearl Harbor. It should also be noted that by 1941, each station could send its intercept data in a matter of seconds via its encoded ECM2 electronic cipher machine to its respective processing center at Corregidor, Pearl Harbor, or the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington, D.C. There, the RDF azimuths were plotted on large nautical charts. Two or more intersections would pinpoint the location of the Japanese warship of interest. Importantly, the Navy was spot on and second to none in terms of detecting and locating the IGN's main fleet aircraft carriers. There were 10 of these. They were the top, top priority and always reported on insofar as possible. In Washington, Commander Arthur Art McCullough received and evaluated and plotted on his naval chart all the key data. He was the Navy's top expert on Japanese culture and psyche, having been born in Japan and growing up speaking Japanese before English. He frequently provided first-hand briefings to President Roosevelt. He also reported directly to Admiral Harold Stark, Chief of Naval Operations. But who was this Franklin D. Roosevelt? During World War I, FDR was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, taking full control when the Secretary, actual Secretary of the Navy became incapacitated. He did a number of very important he reorganized the Navy for war against Imperial Germany. 1918 found him off the coast of France on a Navy destroyer and chasing down German U-boats. He was a can-do man of action. There's no doubt about that. After the war, he then launched into politics as the governor of New York. And as the Great Depression was well underway when he became president in the early 1930s, he immediately faced the dire economic challenges of that era, which now generally distracted him to a large degree from what the Japanese were increasingly doing in China. I might add here as an aside, when I was uh, in high school, I tried to talk to people who uh, had grown up in the Great Depression. They would not talk about it. It was that bad. Yeah. Incredible. They would not talk about it. Okay, nonetheless, the Imperial Japanese Army's rape of Nanking in 1937 did catch his attention as to Tokyo's foreign policy aggressiveness. The visual presentations of Japanese atrocities in the News of the Day programs in movie theaters across the land vividly caught Americans' attention. Anti-Japanese feelings ran sky high. Japan's military were seen as rapacious monsters in every sense of the word. At this time, a naval expansion program was initiated by FDR, with several more aircraft carriers being added to the five already on duty. 
It helped strengthen his pride and joy, the Navy, but also provided badly needed jobs for a segment of the population facing extreme poverty. It should be pointed out that the U.S. Navy had begun to realize that aircraft carriers were the primary battlefield of their modern-day fleet admin. It was dive bombers and torpedo bombers that would win the battle at sea. But now things were going on in Europe. And on the 1st of September, 1939, Otto Hitler's Nazi Wehrmacht army invaded Poland. England and France declared war. Armageddon was at hand. Ironically, a month before that, American scientist Albert Einstein and his colleague Leo Slezard had composed a letter to President Roosevelt. Signed by Einstein, but only delivered and further briefed in early October by Roosevelt's crony, Alexander Sachs, the letter and Sachs' further comments stated in no uncertain terms that Hitler's scientific community was in the process of developing an atomic bomb. An astonished Roosevelt immediately captured the implication of what Einstein and Sachs were implying in their letter, exclaiming, Alex! What you're after is to see that the Nazis don't blow us up. Alex replied, precisely, Mr. President. At that moment, FDR grasped the seriousness of the situation. America's survival as a free and democratic state was at stake. If it was blown off the map map by a demonic Adolf Hitler, how could the free world survive? It was imperative that action be taken immediately. Historians have depicted Roosevelt as both the lion and the fox. The next day, the lion came to the fore as he made his two most important decisions of World War II. Two years before America entered into the war, which would otherwise enable the United States to become the greatest industrial military power in world history. First, the American scientific community was directed to immediately begin to produce an American atomic bomb. Nonetheless, there was no money at hand to really get involved in this. Second, he also now began trying to figure out a way to get at and quash Hitler's atomic bomb project directly via a ground invasion of Nazi Germany. It was his driving imperative from that point on. The second initiative had a problem, though, in that a recent Gallup poll in late 1939 indicated that 80% of Americans were completely against, ever again, becoming involved in another war in Europe. The huge losses of the Doughboys in just six months in the trenches in France in 1918 had thoroughly traumatized much of America. So there the matter stood. It was a vexing problem. So I just I want to yeah I want to pause here for a moment and just kind of reflect on a few things. Um, you know, number one, we we you know there, there's a problem in Europe. We need to we need to squash Hitler. Um, I think that the fact that you know he was developing an atomic bomb might be some new news to people. Uh, as Absolutely. a as a reason for you know U.S. involvement in the war. But Roosevelt's got a problem, too, because nobody wants to go to war. It's, it's a very unpopular, and as politicians are, it's, uh, you know, he's got he's, he's to think about his, his future as the president of the United States. 
Um, and, and we also have this technology, right? So we, we, we can track uh, enemy ships, um, particularly in, in the Pacific. So I think I know where you're going with this, but I don't want to speak for you. So if I'll ask you to, to kind of continue on. Yes, uh, as the pickle finger of historical faith might have it, the Japanese invasion of China with over a million men in 1937 had now bogged them down in China's innumerable mountains. Washington was demanding in the fall of 1940 that Tokyo come to its senses by terminating the war and withdrawing <clears throat> completely from China, thus leaving Chiang Kai-shek as the recognized Chinese leader. Here's the key point. This demand was seen as humiliating and unbearable for Tokyo's leaders to endure. They were imbued with a Bushido code for death before dishonor. By the culture of the day, if the Japanese ventured into a project of any kind, there was no backing out. You had to win and accomplish your goal. Not to do so was dishonorable and inadmissible. Failure demanded that you take your own life or die trying. And this was reflected in uh, university students who failed their final exam. I guess you only got one chance to do the final exam. You failed that. And they had a high number of university students committing suicide after their four years of studies. And you say, that's ridiculous. Come on. That's the way it was in Japan, the Bushido spirit. Albeit completely illogical by Western standards, it was indeed the driving force for a Japanese civilian or soldier alike. Humiliated by the idea of possible defeat in China, Tokyo, led on by its army leaders, imbued with a Bushido code, decided to soldier on. But Tokyo, also concerned that it might get back into the quarter and have to face possible Roosevelt-instigated economic embargoes, then turned to Adolf Hitler. On 27 September 1940, Japan offered, in a secret message to Nazi Germany, which we'd, we'd broken the Japanese uh, diplomatic code, and we knew exactly what they were trying to do, Japan offered Nazi Germany the opportunity to band together in a military alliance against the United States. A cocky, evil Adolf Hitler, exuberant over his successful conquest of Western Europe, enthusiastically signed on to the alliance. If any one of the two went to war against the United States, the other would automatically join in with a full declaration of war against America. All this was known to FDR because Japanese diplomatic code or purple code machine had been broken in Washington. This presented Roosevelt with a wonderful opportunity. Adolf Hitler had inadvertently committed himself to war against America. Now it is just a matter of getting the Japanese to declare war on the United States anywhere in the Pacific, and then Hitler would join in. The Gallup poll that previous summer of 1940 indicated that 86% of the American people would fight if the United States was actually attacked. And so a baited trap was conceived by Roosevelt that fall. The Fox, 
is now in play. Remember the, who developed the lion on the one hand? Here's the fox coming out. Realizing the president was caught up in a quandary as to how to exploit the German-Japanese alliance against itself, Art McCollum of the Office of Naval Intelligence synergized Roosevelt's thinking through a dynamic action-based memorandum. It stated that if the president completely embargoed trade with Japan and at the same time gave all possible aid to Chiang Shek and then demanded that the Japanese close out their war and withdraw completely from China, Tokyo would lash out against the United States by committing an overt act of war. An overt act. This would become the top secret overt act concept and baited trap to trick Hitler into declaring war against America. Its success would enable FDR to get at and quash the Nazi atomic bomb program and overcome any anti-war sentiment in America about going into another ground war in Europe. You have to keep in mind, 80% of the Americans, because of the heavy losses uh, in the trenches in 1918, did not ever, ever, ever again want to get involved in the ground war. But here Roosevelt stuck. Well, if we get attacked, they'll have no choice. We, I have to defend the country. As time went on, the plan was known to the president and his closest staff members as the Overt Act Strategy and referred to as such many times by Secretary of War Henry L. Simpson in his daily typed-out diary, which is available through the Yale University Library. And I got a hold of a copy of the diary. It's on microfilm. And it took me a whole month in the library uh, in, uh, <clears throat> in Pembroke Pines to go through page by page the diary that he laid out the entire case. And that helped me, that helped me understand a great deal about how and why we went to war as we did. Yes, indeed. FDR did control several critical economic levers over Japan. The United States won controlled the principal supply of oil and aviation gasoline to Tokyo, as well as, two its iron ore, steel, and even its three financial assets, which were located in American banks. At a stroke of a pen, these assets could be closed down in an instant. Only the Dutch East Indies oil and gasoline reserves were now available, but soon these two would be closed off. Japan was now finding itself in an economic bite, and because of the Bushido Code, there was no way out except by going to war. In early 1941, Admiral Joe Richardson, the anti-Roosevelt commander of the Pacific Fleet, was summarily retired from the Navy. And in his place came Admiral Husband Kimmel as commander of the Pacific Fleet. He was a no-nonsense, trainer of combat ships, and unmercifully worked his aircraft carriers in terms of coordinated dive bomber and torpedo plane attacks. At the same time, over in Japan, Japan's top Navy commander, Admiral Kisoruko Yamamoto, conducted a series of special staff exercises involving the anticipated war for the Pacific. It was contingency, contingency planning at its best. Pearl Harbor and its alleged 
four aircraft carriers were considered the most serious threat to the IGN Southwest Pacific campaign plan to seize the precious oil and gas reserves of the Dutch East Indies. The carriers at Pearl Harbor had to be destroyed at all costs to protect Japan's left flank as it headed south. So they had a target in Pearl Harbor. As such, a strike force known as the First Air Fleet with six aircraft carriers, the best in the Imperial Navy, was prepared to carry out the attack on Pearl Harbor. They would work and train all throughout 1941 for this one most important event, destroy the American carrier force at Pearl Harbor. That summer of 1941, Adolf Hitler hurled his highly trained two million man Wehrmacht army and its 2,000 tanks into the depth of Russia. It was supposed to be an easy campaign. At this time, President Roosevelt now levied his complete set of embargoes against Japan, oil, gas, iron ore, steel, and finance, and then called for the complete Japanese recognition of Chiang Kai-shek, as well as the complete withdrawal of the Japanese army from mainland China. The Bushido Code was now in jeopardy. The Treasury Department in Washington estimated that Japan only had about a one-year supply of oil and aviation gasoline left before its war machine would have to grind to a halt. The Japanese knew this, and they would have to act. At that time, Tokyo, seeing that its Bushido code and nation's honor were now at stake, opted to lash out at the United States. To begin its process, its 1,000-ship merchant marine fleet was recalled to Japan that summer of 1941 to refit the wartime duty. This decision and orders were duly intercepted, decoded, and tracked through radio direction planning by the Navy's splendid arrangement. The overt act strategy was in full way. But at Pearl Harbor, some strange things were happening. In July of 1941, Admiral Kimmel was cut off from all Japanese diplomatic and military signals intelligence information of any kind. This included intercepts of the low-grade Japanese Honolulu Consulate's diplomatic code, which was used to denote every week for Tokyo the precise ship locations of the Pacific Fleet based at Pearl Harbor. ONI had worked a deal with American uh, telegraph, uh, Telephone and Telegraph and other commercial companies to allow naval intelligence officers in San Francisco to photograph the Honolulu Consulate weekly coded reports before they were forwarded on to Tokyo. So, uh, let me uh, add this. There was no direct communication between uh, uh, Honolulu and Tokyo. They had to send their, uh, any signal information uh, through San Francisco and a, a U.S. commercial carrier would then forward it on to Tokyo. Kimmel had no idea that espionage was taking place at his very doorstep. And he remained in the dark. That summer, a group of five other of the Navy's best codebreakers were sent to Pearl Harbor. This should have given Kimmel a first-hand insight into the IGN's most important naval operations code. 
used to coordinate all warship movements around the Pacific. But the day they arrived, they found their mission on orders from the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington had changed. They were now to be relegated for the rest of 1941 to decoding unimportant, abstract Japanese administrative code. Only their RDF capability would still be in play. Kimmel remained in the dark. They had no idea that they had their orders changed whatsoever. Any and all information going to Kimmel was controlled personally by Admiral Harold Stark, the Navy's chief of naval operations. If a subordinate intelligence officer objected to the close hold that was being maintained on intelligence information being sent to Hawaii, they were summarily relieved and reassigned outside of Washington. During the second week of August 1941, Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill set off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada. Known as the Atlantic Charter, they formed a de facto alliance. This was in August 1941, pledging, quote, the final destruction of the Nazi tyrant, end of quote. It was their first joint wartime conference and took place four months prior to the Pearl Harbor attack. In Tokyo, on 15 November, the Pearl Harbor attack plan was approved and Japan's first air fleet, air fleet was considered battle ready to carry out its mission on behalf of Emperor Hirohito. The attack was to take place early in the morning of December 7, 1941, in coordination with the operational movement of a quarter of a million-man trans-Pacific amphibious invasion force attacking the British at Singapore and conquering the entire Dutch East Indies, which stretched for some 2,000 miles wide across the South Pacific. I might add in that this was the greatest amphibious operation ever taken in history by one country against another in terms of the commitment of personnel and the extent of the length and breadth of uh, the area that they had to uh, conquer. It was really an amazing operation, and they carried it out extremely well. At the same time in Washington, D.C., General George Marshall, and this is important, Army Chief of Staff, convened a conference with the key members of the American press and wire services to brief them on American's intentions for defending the Philippines from a Japanese invasion. The briefing was considered to be at the level of top secret, and not a single word was to be leaked out. After reviewing America's capabilities and general strategy for taking the war to the Japanese home island, he went on to say, quote, we know what they know, and they don't know we know it. He then went on to say the war would probably break out during the first 10 days of December. It was an amazing admission, but not one word leaked out. One would have thought that Admiral Kimmel in Hawaii, along with General Douglas MacArthur, the American Philippine Ground Forces commander, ought to know too that they also were being kept in the dark on this one key critical point. Some days later, the first air fleet went on radio listening silence and began to infiltrate its way into the northernmost Japanese islands 
in preparation for its trans-Pacific movement towards Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Back in Pearl Harbor, a frustrated Admiral Kimmel decided to take the precaution of defending Hawaii from a Japanese <clears throat> attack coming in from the north. He would do this through an ambush strategy known as Battle Plan 2M1, which was to be rehearsed in training on the 22nd of November. I got a copy from the archive of 2M1 uh, Battle Plan. It was the first archive I'd gone to down in uh, Southern California, San Diego. And it, it was the only document that was worth anything. But boy, was it a bombshell. Everybody said Kimmel uh, was just a, a jerk, didn't know what he was doing. This guy was spot on. He had come up with a plan to defend Pearl Harbor from the very serious possible direction of high threat to to the Pearl Harbor Islands, and and he's so doing anyway. that, and he, but he's doing that without any of the intelligence that's being held from him. That's right. He does. He has no idea of what the Japanese are doing. He's just taking the precaution because he figured out he calculated. He, he had Bull Halsey, a famous American admiral in World War II. Halsey was one of his aircraft carrier uh, uh, commanders. And they got together, they sat down, and he probably said, Bull, how would you attack Pearl Harbor? And Halsey probably said, well, I would come right straight across the North Pacific and whop them real hard. And uh, he, he thought, you know, you're right, Bull, and I'm going to come up with a plan to try and foil that. And, and he, he had his uh, 2M1 uh, battle plan. 2M1 basically had the Pacific Fleet aircraft carriers attacking the incoming Japanese strike force on its northeastern or left flank as it made its approach into its launching point some 230 miles north of Pearl Harbor. Uh, it was estimated that the Japanese uh, uh, would have to uh, come in to uh, 230 miles. So 230 miles is the approximate flying distance which the IGN would need in order for its attack squadron to take off, group together, fly to Pearl Harbor, conduct the attack, and then return and in time, on their aircraft, airs land one plane at a time before running out of fuel. Kimmel's fleet practiced over and over again the coordinated attack formations of dive and torpedo bomber planes. Two days later, on the 25th of November, Kimmel received an abrupt message from Admiral Stark ordering him to return immediately to Pearl Harbor and await further orders. His rehearsal of M2M1 was being cut short. That same day, back in Washington, Roosevelt and his war cabinet, as he liked to call it, met to discuss the Japanese situation. Henry L. Stimson, Secretary of War, noted in his typewritten diary for the 25th that, quote, the question was how we should maneuver them, the Japanese, into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. It was a difficult proposition. The next day on the 26th, Kimmel now received a directive, directive from CNO Stark, ordering him to take his two aircraft carriers based at Pearl Harbor and use them to ferry fighter planes out to Midway and Wake Island far out to the west. 
halfway across the North Pacific. They would be gone for upwards of two weeks. In essence, Kimball was now losing his two primary battlefields for defending his fleet. Yet the Admiral must have felt a sense of relief. Logically, Stark would not have ordered the two aircraft carriers away from Pearl Harbor unless the base was considered completely safe from Japanese attack. Two days later, on the 28th of November, Kimmel received a top-secret message from Stark Stark conveying President Roosevelt's statement of American foreign policy toward Japan and what actions he should take. These are carefully laid out in my book, Pearl Harbor Secrets, pages 208 and 209. Quote, if hostility cannot repeat, not be avoided, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. Two, undertake no offensive action until Japan has committed an overt act. There it was. Clear, concise, and to the point. Kimmel didn't know it, but he only had a mere 19 days left as the commander of the Pacific Fleet. All right, what was going on in the North Pacific? On the 26th of November, Admiral Koichi Nagumo departed his northern Japanese marshalling area and headed across the North Pacific with his strike force. He was under strict orders to travel using radio listening silence. In other words, no signaling whatsoever. Only in a dire and unavoidable emergency was he to break this radio listening silence. That emergency actually came about about two-thirds of his way across the North Pacific. An incredibly fierce, tremendous, North Pacific storm roiled his strike force, scattering his precious fuel tankers hither and yon, all of which he needed to make one last refueling before going into the attack against Pearl Harbor. Added to that was a dense fog which settled in and totally blocked any chances of a ship seeing its way back to Nagumo's aircraft uh, Nagumo's aircraft carrier formation. Given the dire circumstances, Nagumo ordered his Akagi command aircraft carrier to send out a low-power homing signal over the next several days and nights so the eight fuel tankers could home in on and make their respective returns into formation. They did, and the homing beacon signals Everything appeared to be okay once again and secure. But was during this time, the Matson steamship SS Moorline, on the way from San Francisco to Honolulu, picked up mysterious signals coming out of the North Pacific. These were plotted by the RDF on the ship's nautical chart for several nights and in turn reported to the Navy's Honolulu, Hawaii, Naval District Intelligence Office. These officers, ironically, completely ignored the report because they were made by American merchant seamen who were considered rank amateurs by the Navy's standards and therefore unreliable. An opportunity to alert Kimmel 
and its Pearl Harbor base is now lost. Nonetheless, the Navy's 13th Naval District Commercial Wireless Company, Press and Globe Wireless in particular, which formed part of the splendid arrangement of San Francisco, denoted as Station X, <coughs> picked up and plotted via radio direction finding mysterious radio signals over a period of several nights, indicating that some sort of a force was moving east across the North Pacific. These were charted as the 13th Naval District and then passed directly on to ONI in Washington. We know the, the above was taken seriously by Art McCullough, who also plotted them and then briefed FDR and the key members of his staff as to what was going on. Indeed, McCullough's conclusion was that this was the strike force headed for Pearl Harbor. The splintered arrangement system had worked. A most important confirming source in all this was Dutch naval attaché, Johan Wren. His own diaries for the 2nd and 6th of December are critical. He was shown the locations of at least two Japanese aircraft carriers steadily progressing east across the North Pacific. That December 4th, a purple decoded diplomatic message from Tokyo revealed that Japan had formally made its decision and was announcing, quote, war with the United States. This was the infamous East Wind Rain message, secretly declaring war on the United States, was intercepted and translated in Washington. Safford responded to this message by sending out his own emergency destruction orders to all exposed island intercept stations, Guam and Wake Island, to destroy all evidence of any intelligence activities. McCullum also tried to send out a warning message to all naval stations and fleet units, but unknown to him, it was quashed by the top-level naval staff. On the 6th of December, that Saturday, Dutch Captain Rana stopped by ONI to see how the situation was evolving and commented in his diary, quote, the atmosphere at ONI is tense. End of quote. Of course it was. The first air fleet was about to attack Pearl Harbor. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. The Japanese were known for initiating their wars on a holiday. And then December 7th, the next day, was a Sunday holiday in Hawaii. That next day, that very 7th of December, at 3.10 a.m., Ten minutes after three in the morning, a coded diplomatic purple message arrived in Washington, intercepted and decoded and directed Japanese Ambassador Nomura to deliver a special follow-up message in English into the hands of Secretary of State Cordell Hall at exactly 1 p.m. that same day. The intended delivery time corresponded to exactly 7.30 a.m. at Pearl Harbor. Later that Sunday morning, around 9 a.m. in Washington, D.C., Admiral Stark, upon receiving a copy of the message, exclaimed, This means war! I must get word to Kibble at once! Whether this is for theatrics is a moot point, as McCullum was present in his office. But Stark never did make the call, and instead called General George Marshall 
and asked him what he should do. Keep in mind, he was duty-bound by the overtax strategy to take no action until Japan had fired the first shot. Marshall said he would take care of it and eventually sent out a Western Union alert cable to Kimmel at the slowest possible means available. In fact, it never mentioned Pearl Harbor and arrived in Kimmel's hands seven hours after the attack had taken place. At 11 a.m. Washington time, or 5.30 in the morning in Hawaii, <clears throat> Hart McCallum realized that time was running out. It was obvious that the attack on Pearl Harbor was timed to coincide with the formal delivery of Tokyo's declaration on war on America. And Kimmel now only had two hours to prepare. That is to say, batten down the hatches, with all hands manning their battle stations, uploading ammunition, and getting the P-40 Warhawk fighter planes into the air in, in anticipation of an attack. Yet Kimmel was still completely in the dark. Comfortable that Pearl Harbor was safe from any Japanese mischief. McCullough himself rationalized the situation in a way that told himself that Kimmel would just have to, quote, take it on the chin. As such, the first shot strategy would be protected to its final end. Take it on chin. And did he ever, at 7.53 a.m., the Google's first wave of 183 fighters, bombers, and torpedo planes rolled into the attack of Pearl Harbor. A second wave of 170 similar aircraft followed some 40 minutes later. Losses appeared catastrophic. 18 U.S. ships sunk, including five battleships, 2,403 sailors, soldiers, Marines, airmen, and other personnel were also killed by the attack. Nonetheless, Japanese Admiral Nagumo was furious, if not thoroughly frustrated. His primary targets were to be Kimmel's alleged four aircraft carriers, and they were nowhere to be found. What had happened? Where were we? Where, where, where were they? Had his attack failed? That depended on your point of view. From the point of view of the Bushido Code of Death Before Dishonor, Japan's national honor had been salvaged and the war was on. So the opening salvo fired in favor of the Imperial Japanese Navy. So I, I need to pause here. Um, because we're about an hour into our discussion. Um, I'm almost there. Yeah, no, no, no. I, and I, I, but I want to make sure that uh, we have enough time for you to, to tell people where they can buy the book. So I'm, I'm going to let you finish, and then we'll wrap up. Okay. <clears throat> that Sunday, December 7th evening uh, in Washington, D.C., President Roosevelt met with his war captain. Harry Hopkins commented in his diary, quote, all of us believed that the enemy was Hitler and he could not be defeated without force of arms, that sooner or later we were bound to be in the war and that Japan had given us an opportunity. Four days later, and seemingly on cue, the evil, demonic Adolf Hitler, his armies now at the gates of Moscow, in a fatal decision, a maniacal zeal, declared war on the United States of America. FDR's baited, overt, act trap had worked. And that is the Pearl Harbor secret. You know, it it's it, a baited trap. 
it, I, I mean, certainly nothing that we were taught in our history books. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, and, and I, there's, there's no way of knowing, but how much this must have weighed on President Roosevelt, um, just knowing his his background, his history with the, the U.S. Navy, just kind of knowing that he's, you know, sacrificing um, the lives of his men. Uh, it, it's one of those philosophical debates, you know. The kind well, of- that's true, but he didn't really appreciate how thoroughly the Japanese would attack Pearl Harbor. And uh, the Japanese admiral who conducted the attack saw his attack as a total failure. Uh, the Japan thought, oh, well, we can justify the Bushido uh, code by that. But uh, Roosevelt uh, had actually succeeded, but the price is very high. Um, as Winston Churchill stated in his memoir, the United States was now in the war up to the neck and into the death. I would submit to you that Pearl Harbor was the pivotal political event of the last century, enabling America to become the greatest industrial military power in the world, a position which is still hold today. Yes, there would have to be sacrifices made, and Admiral Kimmel became the Navy's fall guy. Preserving the Pearl Harbor secret well into the next century. Well, the, the, the research you've done on this um, has been obviously quite extensive. I can only imagine um, all the reading you've had to do. And you did mention kind of microfiche. That, that kind of took me back to, to my college days looking at, you know, old newspapers and such. Um, wh- where uh, can people um, buy this book, Dr. Menzel? Okay, I sent you the... Uh name and address of the publishing house. I don't know whether you had a chance to look at your email. Well, I do have, I do have that, but I'm just curious, is this available in distribution on Amazon? Is it available? Absolutely. Uh, You should be able to go, you should be able to go into Amazon, uh, and, and get the book. Uh, uh, in fact, all you have to do is put the Pearl Harbor secret into the internet and boom, up it comes. Uh, otherwise you can put an Amazon book, uh, dot com. Uh, or you could put uh, Sewell Menzel books. Uh, they, they will come up. You'll have the book on uh, a book on Vietnam called Battle Captain. Another one uh, called Dictators, Drugs, and Revolution. That's about Latin America. And, of course, the latest one, uh, the Pearl Harbor Secret. Yeah, so uh, it hasn't been well published. Uh, the book came out the day before COVID hit. And for the next two years, there was no publishing effort by the company. You know, so that was like slam dunk, Menzel. You're you're out of action, <laughs> and, uh, and and so uh, I've been trying to uh, recover gradually. In the meantime, ABC Clio was taken over by Bloomsbury, uh, which is another publishing house. Uh, Bloomsbury uh, is known to a number of my friends. It wasn't known to me, and so that was kind of important. But uh, ABC Clio is an imprint of Bloomsbury. And uh, in, your, in your email, there's the uh, office phone number, and then there's uh, Christine uh, Beach, the, uh, the key gal who's uh, part of ABC Clio, uh, who can uh, tell you what's going on. Uh, a hot tip, though, she told me a week ago, she said, uh, uh, 
we've decided to change the price on our book. And I said, what do you mean? The book initially came out at $100 a copy. That was about three years ago. And uh, then, of course, COVID hit. And then she said, well, uh, yes, we lowered it down to $60, but now we decided to move it up to 75 So uh, the smart person will get in there real quick and get uh, their copies from uh, uh, out of the Internet as fast as you can. <laughs> Well, but, uh, but, you know, now let me, let me, uh, uh, can I, if I can, I have one page to go and I'll finish off. <laughs> Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. I would, uh, okay. The key question remains, did Pearl Harbor have to happen as it did? I would suggest to you that if the Roosevelt administration had wanted to accomplish the first shot strategy, all the while avoiding as much as it could what happened at Pearl Harbor, it could have taken a different approach. Kimmel should have had access to all available intelligence inputs about Japan and the IGN's attentions towards Pearl Harbor from the very beginning of 1941. My goodness, he was the Pacific Fleet commander. Kimmel's air, aircraft carriers could easily have been beefed up to five or six via transfers to the Panama Canal, and then his proactive 2M1 ambush plan, plan to protect the northern approaches should have been the strategy to defeat the Imperial Japanese Navy strike force, and at the same time, produce a war situation with Japan, which, have caused, which would have caused Otto Hitler to declare war on the United States, which was President Roosevelt's primary objective to enable to get at and quash the Nazi atomic bomb project. In this manner, Kimmel never should have been set up to take it on the chin. And closely, let me remind you of one of President Roosevelt's most famous quotes. In politics, nothing happens by accident. If it happens, you can bet it was planned that way. Nothing happens by accident. If it happens, you can bet it was planned that way. And that's kind of the summing up, I would say, in one sentence of uh, what Roosevelt uh, pulled off with the, uh, the ambush of the American fleet and then uh, luring uh, Adolf Hitler and declaring war in the United States. You know, four, four days later after the the attack of Pearl Harbor, Adolf Hitler declares war, and a year or so later, we're, we're into the uh, beaches in North Africa, and a year after that, we're on Normandy Beach, and one year later, the war is over. <laughs> so, you know, slam bam, thank you, man. But uh, the United States went at it. Uh, and uh, it just... An amazing turnaround in American public opinion. But, uh, I knew some people who uh, were very much against the war, and they said, well, once Hitler declared war on us, we had no choice. We had to go to war. I said, well, you're darn right. Well, thank uh, yes, I, I, th I was only about three or four years old. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, thanks, thanks to the Fox. Uh, thanks to the yeah. Fox. Yeah, the liner and the Fox uh, pulled it all together. So, you know, uh, I, I'm not trying to say that Roosevelt was a hero, but he had his own system to try and uh, shock the American public out of its apathy in terms of dealing with Nazi Germany and another possible ground war in Europe. Of course, they do absolutely nothing about the atomic bomb program. And I'll tell you, a secret here, I knew 
nothing about that atomic bomb program until I got up to the Roosevelt Archive in Hyde Park, New York. And the senior archivist came over to where I was sitting and he said, Dr. Menzel, you look very frustrated. And I said, yes, I am. I cannot. I've got all this information from years and years and years of looking at top secret documents, but I can't tell you why Pearl Harbor took place. And he said, oh, come with me. Took me back into the, the bowels of his archives, um, pulled out a manila envelope. Inside the envelope is a two-page letter, original letter, signed by Albert Einstein to President Roosevelt in the fall of 1939. And it just all came together, I said, oh my God, God bless uh, the archive here with this guy, because he saved my project. My pro project now had a logic, a sense, and I could now uh, say why Pearl Harbor took place. It was, and everything fit together, all the activities going on, and uh, as it was, the Russians happened to get to the... Uh, the uh, German scientific community's establishment first. I don't know uh, how much was left of it by the time they got there, but uh, they uh, they were overrun before they could do anything uh, uh, nasty. As it was, you know, they had the rockets and jet planes and stuff like that. So uh, they had some capabilities. So it wasn't out of the uh, realm of uh, the possible that they could have developed an atomic bomb. As it was, uh, our scientific community had that bomb uh, produced, and uh, Japan felt the effect of it. Boom, boom, one duck, and that and that ended the war. But uh, uh, it's a very, very interesting story. Uh, the, the, the surprise ending to it, I didn't have any idea it was going to end up like it did. But then when it all came together, I said, this is a story that's got to be told. And it took me about two years to write out the manuscript, and it took another year to get it published. But uh, it's out there, and uh, it's a, it's an excellent study in presidential, national security, politics, and strategy making at the highest level. So on that basis, I would say it's a it's a good book for say anybody interested in any kind of military history that deals with uh, World War Two or presidential uh, strategy-making. Uh, there's not too many books about presidential strategy-making uh, when you come right down to it, but this is a classic in its own way. Well, I want to say thank you for uh, thank you for writing it and sharing it with the world. I will be sure to put all the links to the publisher as well as links on Amazon in our show notes so the audience knows exactly where to go to buy it. Um, and, uh, Dr. Menzel, I want to say thank you for joining me on, on Corking a Story. Yeah, you're more than welcome. And if you have any interest, uh, in terms of, uh, you think somebody could, uh, exploit the, the book through a movie, uh, I would be more than happy to, uh, allow that to happen. Very good. I will, uh, I will give that a thought. Thank you very much. You may, you may need a Steven Spielberg to pull it off. Though. Oh, I, I, I already see Tom Hanks in, in some role. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I think I appreciate your taking the interest in the book, and it was my pleasure to uh, pass on the information to you, and, and I wish you all the best and good luck in the future. Thank you very much. Take care, Dr. Menzel.
Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.